0: Good morning everybody, you can find your seats, uh, and as you're finding your seat, you can always go online and go to our live page to find the scriptures that will be there. They're posted, you can go through them. They're also there during the week so that if something I say, which almost all of what I'm pulling stuff from is from the scripture, uh, we do that in our church, might be a little different than what some people are used to, but I want you to go back, check what I say, see if what I say matches up with what scripture says. And so, those are always there all week long for you to go back and look at. If you don't have, you know, your phone or whatever, and you should have a Bible, then you can turn to the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 7, because that's kind of where we're going to be camping out. We've been working through the book of Ecclesiastes, the book of Ecclesiastes, and our series has been, When All Has Been Hurt, When All Has Been Hurt, and Solomon is a guy, the wisest man to ever live, outside of Jesus, who came later, but the wisest man in the Old Testament, The Bible talks about Solomon asking for and receiving supernatural spiritual wisdom from God. He is the son of King David, and so he had some big shoes to fill as he followed, and so in the midst of that, he was like, I don't know how I'm supposed to do this, so he cried out for wisdom, and God gave it to him. But as you know, and as we've talked about, Solomon wrote three books. His first book was The Song of Solomon that was all about passion. It's actually one of the raciest books of the Bible. It's a book that if you read it, you'll probably blush a little bit because it talks about some really intimate things between a husband and wife. And so Solomon's first book, like many young people, was a lot about passion and how to live life with passion and how to have relationships of passion. But then Solomon realized that doesn't work. (laughs) You can't stay passionate. And so he wrote the book of Proverbs, which is a book all about how to do wise things in life, right, so that you get certain results. And Solomon realized after trying to not deal with the passion that he never got control over and then trying to use all the wisdom for his own benefit, realized at the end of his life that it was all meaningless and futile. And so he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. And each book is a snapshot of a guy that's struggling to figure life out. And in each spot, he's learning what it means to live that part of life, to be young and full of passion to do wise things, and then to have a purpose behind it all. Because if you don't, like him, you'll come to the end of your life. And when all has been heard and all you've done, you've heard all the different opportunities and sermons and gurus out there, you realize at the end that it's really pointless. It's meaningless. It's futile. Everybody dies. Most people die tragic deaths. Most people do not die peacefully in their sleep. I just don't. It's a rough world. Today, Solomon goes after probably one of the most important questions of all of human history. Probably one of the most important theological questions that you will ever bump up against in your life that's been asked, as we're going to see, throughout all of the Bible. It's asked in the oldest book of the Bible, Job, all the way to Revelation, the end of the Bible. This is the question that all of humanity has asked. And what we want to look at with that question that we'll see in a minute is the title of our sermon today, which comes from chapter seven, and that is, the one who fears God will. Now, how would you fill in that blank? The one who actually fears God will do what? Just think about it. What would, if you truly fear, and when I say fear, let me clarify what the Bible says about fear. It's not this idea that God's scary and awful and like, ooh, he's going to get me. When the Bible talks about the fear of God, it's always a reverence or an awe. And yes, there is a fear. If you actually have reverence and awe and you understand, like, the authority of a president or the authority of the police or the authority of someone who has the ability to do things to you in your life, take your life, then there is a reverence and an awe in that. And so that's what Solomon realizes. He's like, to the person who recognizes the authority and position of God in their life, how will they be? What will they do? How will they see the world around them? And that's exactly where we find ourselves. A couple of weeks ago, we looked at the fact that Solomon was struggling with the joy in his heart. He's saying, I I have no joy in my heart. I've tried everything to find joy. I've, I've tried everything to change this heart of mine, and there's nothing except to fear God and obey him. Last week, we looked at Solomon tried to make a a great name for himself, and we looked at the power of making a name that means something, and the power of God's name and Jesus' name that has turned the world upside down throughout history, right? And we looked at the fact that Solomon realized at the end of the day he would be forgotten. Your name's going to be forgotten. My name will be forgotten. No one will remember you. We talked about this. Like, you don't know your great-great-grandparents' names, much less what they did, you'll be forgotten. That's just human history. It's the way it goes. And that can be very, like, depressing, meaningless, futile. Then why even try? Why even care? Why even raise a bunch of kids if they're just going to forget me? Right? If you've been a parent, you know that's exactly what happens. (laughs) Right? They don't call. They don't text. They never visit. Right? And so you go, okay, what does that mean then? What do I do with my life? What am I supposed to do when i see these things so let's dive in ecclesiastes 7:13 solomon says this he says consider the work of god so you need to consider not your work and what you do and how you do things and how it's working out you need to consider what god's doing that's first thing and we're terrible at this right We always want to look at what we're doing and, like, measure it and compare and look. And if I'm doing this, then I get this and all this kind of stuff. And what God says is, look, the first thing you have to do if you're really going to understand life, if you're truly going to consider God, is you have to consider what is the work of God. And when you look through the Bible, God does some pretty weird stuff with the way he works. a matter of fact, the world itself does some pretty weird stuff with the way it works. Right? Like... The way our bodies work to fight off disease is really weird if you think about it. Like, why don't we just, why can't we just automatically just not get diseases? Where'd they come from? And why does our body actually have to get them to then process or be given like a fake part of it, like, again, a vaccine, so that our body knows how to respond to this crazy foreign thing? Seems very weird to me. But it's the way things have been designed. God has designed so that we cannot just consider ourselves, we are everyday forced with the reality of everything being outside of our control almost. That there is something else going on, that, there, that is a mess. And so, God, so Solomon, in the midst of writing this book when he's almost 60, almost to the end of his life, he's had 700 wives and 300 concubines, we'll talk about that in a minute is looking at his life and he's saying, you know, I'm realizing that I might have been the wisest man in the world. I might have built the greatest kingdom that ever existed. I might have built the most peaceful empire ever in the history of God's people. But he said the whole time I was considering me. Not considering God. And it's cost me. And now I look back on my life and it just seems like it was all meaningless and futile. And I can tell you, every single person comes to that place at some point in their lives. And how you respond to it, what you will do when you come to the reality of God and who he is and his authority is essential for you to move forward. He says, for who can straighten out what God has made crooked or even allowed to be made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. But in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other so that man cannot discover anything that will come after him. Solomon says, look, everything God is doing is trying to get us to consider him. Do you really know who I am? Do you know me? Do you have a relationship with me where there is awe of me in you? Or is it just all about considering yourself and considering whatever you want and what's going to happen, considering your retirement, considering, considering, considering everything in this earth, but it's never what would God might he want me to do? Because sometimes God asks us to do, us to do stuff that's just crazy. It doesn't make any sense. I mean, it does in terms of the scripture, but in terms of it's not going to work out for our benefit if we say or do this. I mean, that's kind of the whole Old Testament, right? And even the New Testament. Stories of people who did exactly what God wanted to do and it wasn't like everybody was applauding them. They wanted to kill them. That's what happened to Jesus. <laughs> we worship a guy that that happened to. And so when you consider God, he says, look, you should be joyful. Do you realize that we are the most prosperous nation to ever exist in the history of humanity? Most prosperous. I mean, we don't even worry about things that people worried about for all of human history. Like, most people don't go to the hospital to have a baby and think, I'm going to die. They don't. And yet, just 100 years ago, almost 50% of women around the world died from childbirth. It was so high, at some point, you have so many children because there wasn't birth control. So you'd have like 15 kids, (laughs) right, if you really liked each other. And so, like the chances of you dying from one of those 15 was pretty high. And we don't even think about that now and how prosperous and amazing that is that, wow, I'm going to go to the hospital and I really don't have to really be scared of dying because they're probably going to keep me alive as a mother. Like, that should bring joy and, like, appreciation. and Man, I'm thankful. And instead, we just gripe and complain because we don't have certain things. We don't consider what God has done and we don't consider what he is doing. And that's just one area of life. There's multiple areas like that. Look at what Job says. Job is the oldest book in the Bible. And at this moment in chapter 1 of Job, what's happened is that there's a spiritual battle going on behind the scenes. Job is a man that has feared God his entire life. Read the book. It's amazing. He's feared God. He He has feared for his kids and his family even. I mean, Job has truly said, God, you are God. He is appreciative of God. He worships God. He thanks God for all he has. And in this moment, before I read what Job says to the Lord, he has been stripped of everything. If you read the verse right before this, it says that the walls of the building his children were in collapsed and killed all of them. That's right before he writes this. He just lost all of his kids, every one of them. This is the oldest book God has given us. The oldest story in the Bible is the book of Job. And it lays out the big question, which is why evil and suffering? See, God doesn't shy away from that question. We as Christians shy away. Like somebody asks us, that, oh, I don't know. Yeah, that's a tough one. I'm like, No, God from the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and then Job, the first story, oldest story, has said there is suffering, there is pain, here's how it happened, here's where it came from, and you got to trust me that I'll deliver you someday from it. Job is experiencing the greatest pain you can ever experience. He is sick, literally, covered in, not at this point, but he will be soon, covered in boils. His family's completely died. He's lost all of his wealth. All of his herds have died off. He is in a moment right here of the lowest of the low that everybody would be like, what is going on? And look at what Job says. Job is first laying down, crying out to God. And then he says, Job stood up. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell to the ground and worshiped, saying, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Throughout all of this, Job did not sin or blame God for any of it. Man, I wish I could say that. I wish I could say that I didn't sin and when things get bad and that I don't blame God sometimes or Job didn't. Now, when you read the book, Job had some pretty hard questions for God. You read the book and like God lets Job ask some hard questions because that's what you do in a relationship. You ask hard questions, right? He, like he lets him have these conversations with him and you're like, man, Job's pushing it here. And God realizes Job's pushing it. And when you get to the end of the book of Job, God's like, okay, I've pushed you far enough. Be quiet. (laughs) Shut your mouth. Let me give you an education. And then God, you think God would like throw his arms around him and love him. Not yet. God goes, I created everything. Where were you, Job, when I did this and when I did that and when I did this? And it's like, whoa. And Job's response isn't like, why are you being so mean to me? I've been crying out to you. Job's like, oh yeah, I forgot what I said at the beginning of the book. And I've been laying into you for like 30 chapters. Uh, Sorry. My bad. And God says, Exactly. I love you. And restores everything tenfold to Job had. Now, God may not restore everything. He doesn't restore everything tenfold for everyone in the Bible, but He gives us this passage of Scripture. He gives us these stories in the Bible so that we can consider what's happening to us. He doesn't hide it. It's not like the other religions that make false promises. God doesn't make false promises. He lays it out for us. Here it is. Here I am. Here's what you're in. Here's how the world works. We're the ones that say, thank you very much. I'll go look for someone else, something else, another God that will please me and give me what I want. That's what I do sometimes. God has been honest from the beginning. He doesn't lie. But we love the lies because the lies feel a lot better they do. It feels good to be lied to, right? Until we find out the truth. Man, you look beautiful today. You look wonderful. And you, you know, and, and then you go somewhere and someone's like, you have a booger on your nose. Did no one tell you all day? And you're like, and you look, you told me I looked well, I didn't want to offend you. I, you did have a big booger when you left the house, but I didn't want to offend you because, you know, you get mad when I tell you you don't look good. So I just kept my mouth shut. I would rather you offend me and i just be mad for a little while and get the booger out of my nose than let me walk around thinking I'm beautiful today and you didn't warn me. God just gives us the truth. He just says, here it is. I'm just being honest. And Job realizes that God has had that relationship with him. And so even though Job is going through the worst things that we will probably never go through, this is what Job's response is. Because he truly is one who fears God. And someone who, will, who truly knows God and knows Jesus and knows the Bible and knows who God is will always come back to worship. What do you want me to do, God? Fear God and obey his commands. That's the theme of Ecclesiastes. He says, when everything else has been heard, the end of the matter is fear God and just do what he says to do. Just do it. And we go, no. And Job's like, and even God said, Job was the most righteous man. There was no sin I'm doing this to him for. Job is actually being tested in a spiritual battle when you read the book. God's like, you can take out, you go after Job and see if he won't continue to worship me. See, I've made humans that will do that. And so there is a spiritual battle raising, raging that Job didn't understand he was a part of and most of us sometimes don't understand we're a part of. He goes on, and this is what Solomon says. In my futile life, pause for a second. And he says, I've seen everything. There is none of us. Tune in. None of you, if you knew Solomon and lived in Jerusalem, would think that's a futile life. This is the wealthiest man ever to exist. He has made treaties with all the nations around him to bring peace. The inside of the temple and even the outside are lined with gold. He has 700 wives and 300 concubines, he has thousands of children. I mean, everything's going, the economy is buzzing. I mean, it is going great in Jerusalem and Judea. No one is looking at Solomon and thinking, man, that's a futile life. Everyone would look at him and go, man, how do I get to be like Solomon? That's what I want. And Solomon's trying to convince the people, don't do what I did for the last 45, 50 years. I was wrong. I was wrong. And they're looking, going, No way you're wrong, man. That's exactly what we want. Yeah. Solomon's like, no. I've been, I have not considered the things of God. I've used all the wisdom God graciously gave me, and he hasn't taken it from me because I've been bad. He's continued to give me the wisdom, and I've used all of it for selfish gain, and I realize now how futile I've been in my life. Like, Then he says, I've seen it all. I've tried it all. Solomon literally tried all the foods from all over the world that would be bought to Jerusalem. Everybody wanted to trade with Solomon. Everybody wanted to be in on Solomon's game. Everybody wanted his blessing. His DNA, if you do a study of the DNA of Solomon and the DNA of King David, it's sprinkled all over the world. Because he had so many wives from so many different nations And so many different children from so many different racial backgrounds that he wasn't supposed to do because God told him not to, and and it's infused all over the place. It's crazy. He says, there is a righteous man who perishes in spite of his righteousness. That's Job. And there is a wicked man who lives long in spite of his evil. The reason for that is the same reason Jesus came in poverty, Jesus came in poverty to show us there's nothing this world has to offer me. There's nothing I'm going to take from this world because my father has it all. And someday I'm going to come back and I'm going to change the whole world to be what I want it to be, but I can wait. And boy, that's a hard message because it's not anything you hear in our world today. Our world today is like, here's how you be righteous. Here's how you be prosperous. Here's how you do all this stuff. It's all a business deal. And God's like, I'm just asking you, regardless of the circumstances you find yourself in, to believe that I am God, to have awe of me, to love me, fear me, and do what I ask you to do and believe that that's actually going to be the best thing for you, both mentally, physically, whatever, even though it seems like it's not. And boy, do we wrestle with that. And Solomon wrestled with that. Job in the book of Job wrestled with that. Paul wrestled with that. Peter Jesus himself in the garden of Gethsemane said, not my will, the fleshly will that I have, but your will be done, God. We all wrestle with, Jesus is like, I'm getting ready to go to a cross for nothing but wickedness. I don't deserve this. I'm the son of God. And God's like, don't you remember the original plan? We created everything and we all agreed as the Trinity, we were going to do our part. Like we made a covenant to say, you know, when time began, you're committed, Yeah, that's why I'm going to do your will. Even though this isn't going to turn out well, necessarily. Goes on and says this. Jeremiah, another book, says, You will be righteous, Lord, even if I bring a case against you. Yet I wish to contend with you. See, God allows contention. Because that's how we arrive at truth. You don't arrive at truth when everything's going well. There's no contention. You don't talk about anything meaningful. You just do life, right? I mean, it's like you go to Disney World and you're having a great time and then the contention happens. Which ride are we going to ride and wait in line for, right? I mean... God wants us to contend with one another because we don't know the truth. Solomon said, I thought I knew the truth, but I wasn't considering God. We need to consider God. We need to consider his truth. That's why we go through so much scripture on a Sunday morning. I I don't want you to hear from me. I want you to hear God's truth. I want you to see that his word is his word. You might not like our church. You might not like me. Fine. This is the word of God. I got nothing else. He goes on. He says, Jeremiah is like, I wish to contend with you. And God lets him contend with it. Like, God lets us argue. Like, it's literally like a two-year-old when we let a two-year-old contend with us. Like, you realize I could kill you right now. You're little, I can, and I can make three more of you. And you're screaming and throwing a fit. Like, do, do you not understand how this works? I'm big. I squish you. Like, that's literally. So why don't we do it? Love. Relationship. Patience. They're not going to be that way forever. I'm going to give them a second chance and a third chance to not do that. That's literally what we're talking about. That's literally what Jeremiah is looking at and saying. Then look what he says. What does the way of, why does the way of the wicked prosper, God? Why do all the treacherous live at ease? You planted them and they have taken root. They have grown and produced fruit. You are ever on their lips, but far from their conscience." See, Jeremiah's not talking to a bunch of lost people. He's talking to God's people. He's saying there's all these people running around saying they know you, they love you, and all this kind of stuff, but they are just wicked. And Solomon's like, yeah, I'm one of them. Goes on and he says, as for you, Lord, you know me. You see me. You test whether my heart is with you. Lord, it frustrates me that I don't see the fear of God. It frustrates me that I see people who should know what God's will is and they don't do it. But you know what, God, at the end of the day, I am so thankful that I fear you, that I know you, that I love you, that you love me, that we have a relationship, that you test me and you help me become a better man, a better woman, that you do that in my life. I am so grateful. So yeah, I'm contending with you, but let me just remind you as I'm asking these questions that I'm struggling with right now, at the end of the day, I'm committed to you. So I can live through this contention, we can live through this contention, we can fight, we can battle, we can go through this, and it might be long periods of fighting and battle and going through things. Because Jeremiah's life was a long period of, he's called the weeping prophet, because he was just sad all the time and broken over the mess of his nation and the mess of the quote-unquote church or God's people at the time. And he says, you know what, God, I understand that the reason you're doing this, and we read this in Ecclesiastes earlier, is because you test people so that they can see their hearts. And so that they can see your heart. And that's what the fear of God is. Do I actually fear God? That's do I understand God's heart? Do I believe in his heart? And then do I obey his commands? Does he actually have my heart? That's fear of God and obey a command. That, that's it. Look at what Habakkuk says, another prophet in the Old Testament. He says, your eyes are too pure to look on evil, and you cannot tolerate wrongdoing. So why do you tolerate those who are treacherous? It's asked in almost every book of the Bible, this question's asked. Why is it so bad? Why so treacherous? Why the big mess? So why do you tolerate it? Why are you silent while no one, or while one who is wicked swallows up the one who is more righteous than himself? Why, 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 why? Look at what Peter says in the New Testament. Peter's dealing with this same question. He's dealing with people, he's writing to a church that's being murdered. Their children are being slaughtered, their wives and their husbands are being killed just because they've been baptized and claimed Jesus. That's who Peter is writing to when we read these next words. These are people that are like, I don't care what the world does to me. I believe Jesus is who he says he was. He, he died and he came back to life and there's no one else who's done that. So either he is God or something really weird happened. Look at what Peter says. The Lord does not delay his promise as some understand delay. God, when are you gonna deal with wickedness? It's like, I'm gonna deal with it. But when, when, when are we gonna be there? What time? But his patient with you not wanting any to perish but all to come to repentance but the day of the Lord will come like a thief and on that day the heavens will pass away with a loud noise and the elements will burn and be dissolved in the earth and all the works on it will be disclosed and we look at that and go "Ooh, that's pretty brutal and yet every movie we watch it's any kind of action film that's exactly what we love to watch Someone save us from the nuke. Someone save us from Thanos. Someone save us from the aliens that are coming. Because we know it's going to be in an instant. We know. Someone save us from the asteroid that's going to hit the earth and it's going to cause worldwide extinction. Someone save us from the moon falling out of its orbit and smashing into us. Like all of these movies we watch are humans trying to solve problems in our own effort. For our own benefit. And God is in heaven saying, hey, I've already solved it all. You still have the problems. But do you just see that I'm, the reason I haven't fixed things, are you ready for this? Is because if I fix things, you may not be fixed yet. And I'm going to have to judge you. And I'm going to have to judge your child. I'm going to have to judge others. And so I'm waiting patiently so that more people will repent. What is repentance? Repentance is literally saying, I'm going the wrong way. Hey, look, there's God. I want to fear him and I want to go his way that's repentance. And and you go, okay, I'm going to go his way. I'm going to obey him and not this stuff anymore. That's what it means to repent. He goes on, he says, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, it is clear what sort of people you should be in holy conduct and godliness as you wait for and earnestly desire the coming day of the Lord for things to be fixed. And then he goes on in the end. He says, we wait for a new heaven, for the new heavens and the new earth where righteousness will dwell. We don't have to ask the question, why do bad things happen to good people? God's already answered it. Because the whole point was to lead, to show us our hearts that he's going to bring the most perfect person, the most holy person, the most gracious, most, I don't want anything out of the world person into the world. And we all, the Romans, the Jews, everybody agreed, kill that guy. I want nothing to do with that. He's not helping me at all. And he says to his followers and those who believe in him, there's going to be a resurrection for you someday. You know the problem with resurrection? You have to be dead. That's the problem with resurrection. You know what a revival is? You're either bringing dead people back to life or you're reviving people who act like they're dead. That's what a revival, you shock someone's heart back. We revived them. (laughs) Heart stopped, we brought it back. Like, God has been doing this for all of human history. He gives us the answers. He just asked, now, will you believe me? Will you, will you tell others? He says, Peter says, it's clear what kind of people you should. It's absolutely clear. God has given us all the evidence of why we should be the way we should be, why we should trust him, that he's, he blesses to the thousandth generation. Like you can trust me a thousand generations out even though they don't know you, that you living your life for me and, and surrendering to me will be worth it a thousand generations out. But if you don't do that, you're going to be cursed for three to four generations. He goes on and says this, Don't be excessively righteous and don't be overly wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Don't be excessively wicked and don't be foolish. Why should you die before your time? It's good that you grasp the one and do not let the other slip from your hand. For the one who fears God, that's what we're talking about, will end up with both. Both what? Well, both righteousness and both wisdom and enjoying life. He says, wisdom makes the wise man stronger than 10 rulers of a city. Solomon lived that. He saw that. He was one of the wisest and greatest rulers. He, he saw what wisdom can do, but that's still the question of why were you using, what were you using the will, ah, wisdom for? This verse has been so misinterpreted. People say, don't be excessively righteous. Yeah, that's why I I try to have a good time, and I don't try to get too serious about God. You know, I don't want to be obsessively righteous. You know, I want people to think I'm pretty cool. And then the other part is, and it says, you know, don't be excessively wicked. Yeah, I try not to drink too much because then I do really bad things. So I just get a little hammered. I just get right on that buzz line, and then I stop. Like, this is what we do. We try to play the game with God instead of saying, God, what do you say is righteous, and what do you say is enjoyable? I want to do both those things. I want to enjoy what you enjoy, and I want to do what you say is right. So help me. So I fear you. I ask you to help me. Please. And then God gives us a whole Bible full of stories and things that are like, oh, that's how you're supposed to do that. Oh, don't do that. Like, it's beautiful. He lays on, and Solomon says, look, Be careful that you don't become a legalist, right, where you're so self-righteous that you destroy yourself with ulcers and bitterness that just eats at you. And don't be so free with everything that you're irresponsible and kill yourself by doing stupid things. Oh, that makes sense. Yes. And both of those extremes have one thing in common. I fear something more than God. So I don't believe God can actually forgive me, so I have to measure up to Him. I have to really be super righteous so He can forgive me. I got And on the other side, it's, well, God loves me, He cares for me, so I can do whatever I want. He, no, you don't know God then. This person doesn't know God and this person doesn't know. They don't understand who God is. They don't understand their purpose in life. They don't understand the community of believers and what we're supposed to be doing in the world. And it breaks God's heart. And Solomon realized this, and he said, man, grab a hold of both the joy of life and living and the joy of righteousness and knowing how to live, and then you're going to walk through a mess when you do it, and God's with you, and he came from heaven to earth to model it. You know, it's funny, because I was thinking about my life this week, driving, and I thought about my 18 to, I came to faith in Jesus at age 18. I thought about my 18 to 25 year old religious self, right? And I thought about how hungry I was to learn and how naive I was and, and just how, how I was just taking everything in. And then by about 25, I thought of my 25 to 36 year old self. I was kind of a jerk. I am so thankful I had a lot of very patient, loving people to help me, like to walk me through that period of my life where I thought I had things figured out. and We should do it that way and that way and that way and that way. And I love that I had some really older men in my life that just sit across the table and were like, no. <laughs> love you, no. We're not going to do that in the church. No, we're not going to do that. No. <laughs> I'm so grateful. I had a grandfather, a father. I had other pastors. Like, I'm so glad I put people in my life that didn't look at my 25 to 36-year-old self and be like, man, we just want you to go get it. You do it. You do it. They're like, hold on. Like, great, great that you have passion, right? That's the solid, that pa- great that you're, you know, and I was getting some wisdom. I was learning things. I knew how to read my Bible and study, and all of a sudden, I'm like, oh, I got to tell people this stuff. Now, in my 37 to 47-year-old self, I'm like, I don't know anything but Christ and Him crucified. I'm a disaster. Like, everything's pretty simple when you boil it down. I just don't like the message. <laughs> I'm hoping that my 47 to 57-year-old self will really enjoy the message. Like, I'll get this whole righteous and joy thing. You see, there's a godly way to live, and he who fears God will live that way. He goes on to say, there's certainly no righteous man on the earth who does good and never sins. (laughs) Nope. Not you, not me, not anybody. Romans says this, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely. You can't earn it. You can't work it off. You can't make a good deal with God. You are freely given his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Remember the name Christ Jesus means Messiah who is Yahweh who saves. That's what his name means the Messiah that we're all looking to save us, that we need saved from something, that guy who is actually God himself who can actually save. That's what that means. And so Paul's writing, he's look. Like, all of us are sin. Now, what are we going to do? All of us are wicked. All of us deserve to be that wicked person. The Bible says, why are they prospering? Everyone in your life should look at you and say, I know what they did, and why are they prospering? I have tons of people in my past that can look at my life and go, Yeah, you shouldn't be prospering because of what you said or what you did or what you didn't do. And my answer to them every time is, you're right. I shouldn't. I should be dead multiple times over. I deserve the death penalty. But there's a God who has justified me, who's loved me, who's given me his grace, and he's redeemed me when I don't deserve it. And he can do the same for you. That's my message. That's all I've got. Romans says this, but now since you have been liberated from sin, Christ has liberated us from it. We're not under it anymore and have become enslaved to God. We don't like that word. Most translations change the word slave in the New Testament to servant. The word is doulos. It means slave. We just have messed that up in our culture. We don't like that word. It's just the reality. Bible says you are enslaved to something. You're either enslaved to God or enslaved to sin. There's no like in between because you're not a master. You're just a person. You need a master, right? The question is, who are you going to make your master? Sin? You're going to make your own mind and your own heart your master? You're going to make other people your master? Or are you going to make God the master? And he says, you have your fruit, which results in sanctification. Sanctification is becoming more like God. And in the end, you have eternal life. He's like, you get eternal life. It's guaranteed if you know Christ, because he says, the wages of sin is death. What you get because of sin is death. Physically and then also spiritually. And then he says, look at this, but the gift of God is eternal life in the Messiah who is Yahweh who saves, who is Yahweh, Jesus Christ our Lord. What you get in exchange for being an idiot, what you get for your wages that you deserve to be paid and, and like you, get, you deserve to be fired from this life, like forever, for all, like we do. We're terrible at it. God says for all of that, he says, I offer you a gift. Now the gift carries with it some weight. If you take the gift of a relationship with me, it means you've invited me into your life and I'm going to start messing with it. We're going to have some conversations. I'm going to bring people into your life that are going to mess with you to test you, to see if you really know the gift you've been given. And so that you appreciate the gift. Sometimes God makes it feel like the gift's been taken away so that we appreciate that we had it. Sometimes he gives us even greater gifts so we feel unworthy to have anything. And in all of it, he's trying to just get us to see how great he is. You see, fools ignore this and overly wise people try to complicate this. Fools ignore it and overly wise try to complicate God's grace and his gift. Don't ignore the reality of this and don't try to complicate it. It is simple. It is a relationship and it's beautiful and it's a relationship that we're all longing for. He goes on to say this, don't pay attention to everything people say, or you may hear your servant cursing you, for you know that many times you yourself have cursed others. <laughs> I can't believe they said that about me. And that's why they're this. <laughs> like, right on the end of your, like, not, and I hope God blesses them, and I hope he, they come to know Jesus, and I'm really frustrated, but God help them. No, 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 we, no, we do the same thing. We're like, well, they curse me, I curse them back. I mean, that's what causes marriages to fail. We just keep stabbing each other until one of us bleeds out. Somebody's got to stop and be like, I'm going to at least put the sword down, right? I'm not going to stab anymore. He says, don't pay attention to everything people say. Look, I make mistakes. I have had to apologize from this podium multiple times for things that I said. And people come up to me after service and say, did you, did you realize you said this? And I go, oh gosh, that's not Right. So I've had to come back and apologize. Be like, I said something last week, shouldn't have said, my bad, I ask your forgiveness. Why? Because I wasn't forgiven before? No. Because I did something that didn't bring awe and reverence to God. I did something that didn't honor him. I did something I don't want you to go out and repeat. And so I'm pausing to say, don't do that. And I'm willing to do it publicly. Why? Because it was a public thing I said. It was a private thing. I wouldn't have to come up here and tell you all my private stuff. I could, but I don't have to. And he says, look, be careful that you don't judge harshly. Look, you've done just as bad. Now, does that mean we don't judge? Does that mean we don't evaluate? No. He doesn't say don't pay attention to anything. He says don't pay attention to everything. Don't change the word. We we should pay attention to what people do and what they say and how they act and what their character is. But we should then say, okay, is that all of them, or are there some other things I'm missing? We always want to put people in a black or white situation. And man, other than God Himself and what he says in Scripture, there is a lot of gray in this world that we don't know how to interact and do these things. We don't know why the wicked prosper, the righteous suffer at time to time. We just have to trust God. Jesus said it this way in a parable. Peter came to Jesus and said, Lord, how many times could I, my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And Peter thinking he's like real righteous. He's like, as many as seven times? Like most people forgive the first time, the second time, the third time, like one, two, three strikes, you're out, the old ball game. Like, no, like I'm going seven and seven's a perfect number, right? Like seven days of creation. Like Peter's like really acting righteous here. Like, I have, forgiven, I have forgiven John seven times. I have forgiven Luke seven times. They're driving me nuts. Can I stop forgiving John? It's been, I'm on six. John, I'm on six. I'm willing to go to seven. I tell you, not as many as seven, Jesus said to him, but 70 times seven. And you know what we do as soon as we read that? Hold on, let me get my calculator out. Why? Because we're trying to measure like, our response to sinfulness versus saying, wow, God's willing to forgive that much. How much more should I forgive? When he shouldn't have to forgive anything because he's God. Jesus gives a ridiculous number. He's not asking and saying, okay, 70 times 7. I'm, oh, I'm right there. You got one more. I did the math. That's not the point. This is hyperbole. Then he says, for this reason, the kingdom of heaven can be compared to a king. Who wrote the book of Ecclesiastes? King Solomon, you can answer. King, a king wrote it. So he says, it can be compared to a king who wanted to settle accounts with his slaves. When he began to settle accounts, one who owed 10,000 talents, that would be 10,000 years wages, was brought before him. Since he had no way to pay it back, Nope. His master commanded that he, his wife, his children, and everything he had be sold to pay the debt. Yeah. But you did this. You deserve to be punished. At this, the slave fell face down before him and said, be patient with me and I will pay you everything. Then the master of that slave had compassion, released him, and forgave the loan. What? What? But that slave went out and found one one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. It's not even a comparison to what he owed. Like, still a lot of money, but insignificant. And then he says, he grabbed him, started choking him, and said, pay what you owe. At this, his fellow slave fell down and began begging him, be patient with me. He never said, forgive my debt. He said, just be patient with me, please. I'll do anything I can to pay back what I know I've done. When the guy before was just forgiven. But he wasn't willing. On the contrary, he went and threw him into prison until he could pay what was owed, which meant his family starved in this culture. When the other slaves saw what had taken place, they were deeply distressed and went and reported to their master everything that had happened. Yup, that's exactly what we're supposed to do. Uh, hey, that's not very, like Jesus, that wasn't, that didn't look right. Then after he had summoned him, his master said to him, you wicked slave, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Shouldn't you have also had mercy on your fellow slave as I had mercy on you? And his master got angry and handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he could pay everything that was owed. He owed 10,000 years wages. How long do you think that torture was? It's a reference to hell. This is a reference saying, do you really fear God? Well, then do you do what God does? Are you willing to do what God, or do you hold everything? Then he goes on, he says, And this master got angry and handed him over. And then it says, so my heavenly father will also do to you if each of you does not forgive his brother from his heart. What Jesus is saying is your response and how you act in the world reveals reveals what you really fear. It reveals what your heart really is. And if you just give people a pass, remember the master didn't just give him a pass. It wasn't like, oh, no big deal. You just go, no, he holds him accountable. He's like, okay, I've forgiven you. Now I'm gonna hold you accountable to go tell people about how great a master I am that I forgive debts. And that guy went out and he's like, forgot all about what the master did. And he's like, you yeah. and the master's like, that's not who I am. Now, does the master just go around and say, you're forgiven and you're forgiven and you're forgiven and everybody's forgiven? No, there's a response of brokenness. That's the point of the parable. There's two broken men One who's a false broken person and one who's a true broken person. You see, everything that's happening right now, and Jason mentioned that at the beginning of service, with the Asbury revival, everything that's going on at the Asbury revival right now, I would, a good pastor that I know wrote, it it looks more like an awakening than a revival. Here's the deal. A revival is something that proves itself out in works. An awakening is realizing the fear of God. There's the fear of God, that's an awakening. And then there's a revival, which is the surrender to God's will. Many of us, us, like these slaves, have been awakened to the reality of God as a master, but we refuse to let him revive us by living our lives out for him. You see, forgiveness is not an elevation or an alleviation of consequences. It's an embracing of consequences. Both of these guys said, I'll pay it back. It's embracing that I've broken things, but God, I I just want to serve you, and I can never pay it back, but you know what? You're a good master with all the resources, so I just believe if I live for you and point to you that you will help pay people back for all the evil I've done in their life, because I can't. He goes on in 1 Thessalonians, Paul writes, Now we ask you, brothers, to give recognition to those who labor among you and lead you in the Lord. And admonish you, and regard them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we exhort you, brothers warn those who are irresponsible, comfort the discouraged, help the weak, be patient with everyone. See to it that no one repays evil for evil, or no one repays evil for evil to anyone, but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. That's what God says is good, not what we think is good. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in everything. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Every time a college student ever comes up to me and wants me to talk to them about trying to figure out God's will for their life, I turn to that verse every time. Verse 16 and 17. I go, do you really want God's will for your life? Because I actually know it. I actually know God's will for your life. It's crazy, but he's revealed it to me. I have a word. And I just turn to this and I go, rejoice always. Pray constantly and give thanks to God in everything, even the bad stuff, for that's his will for you. Now do that for a while and see if he doesn't show you all the other wills he has for you. But see, we want a specific will. We want something we can cling to and earn and show off and point to. We don't want the will of just rejoicing and loving life and praying for others and embracing whatever comes our way, like Job and Habakkuk and Jeremiah all had to deal with. And why can we deal with it? Because God says we can rejoice in it all. The last section here of Ecclesiastes says this, verse 23. Solomon says, I've tested everything by wisdom, and I resolved I will be wise, but it was beyond me. The wisest man in the world, supernaturally given wisdom, says, I decided to use wisdom all for my own benefit, and I realized I'm not even close to true wisdom. I'm an idiot. I don't even know stuff. It led him back to saying, at the end of the book, just please fear the Lord and obey him. I, I have led you badly. He goes and he says... What exists is beyond reach and very deep. Who can discover it? I turn to my thoughts to know, explore, and seek wisdom and an explanation for everything, for all things, and to know that wickedness is stupidity and folly is madness. So he's like, I used wisdom to my benefit, and I didn't do stupid, wicked stuff. That's like the American dream right there. I just hope my kids don't kill anybody. They get a good education, and I've been successful. No, they're just not stupid and doing folly. That's not success. That's just dumb. Not to, like, he goes on, he says, I went after everything. And you know what he found? And I find more bitter than death. Solomon has pursued everything. He knows as much as anybody. He gets to the end. He can't figure this out. He saw it, saw it, saw it. And he goes, I'm just bitter and dead inside. You ever been there? Maybe you're there now. You are just a bitter, dead person. Maybe you're bitter and dead over your own sinfulness and brokenness. Maybe it's because of what someone else has done to you. Something, maybe it's at God because he hasn't given you what you thought you're owed. Or you do, do, like Solomon's like, you can have that bitterness and you can have that idea, but I'm telling you, it does not lead anywhere. I've pursued everything and it's meaningless, and this is where I've ended up. Don't end up where I am. You see, you can't pursue the meaning of life without God. It will always lead to bitterness and death. He goes on in verse 26, And I find more bitter than death. And the woman who is a trap, her heart a net, and her hands chains, The one who pleases God will escape her, but the sinner will be captured by her. Look, says the teacher. I have discovered this by adding one thing to another to find out the explanation, which my soul continually searches for, but does not find. Among a thousand people, I have found but one true man. But among all these, I have not found a true woman. Wow. Okay, I'm done with the Bible. God's a misogynist. Solomon's a misogynist. He hates women. No. Solomon's honest. See, he's not talking about women here. He's saying what he found. He's not saying women are this way, and I'll prove it in the next verse. What Solomon is saying is, I had 700 wives and 300 concubines looking for the right one. The next one, that's going to that's fulfill me. The next woman, the next, that's going to... Solomon's confessing here. He's like, I kept looking for the one that was going to complete me. I, if I'm just getting married, if I just date the right, just having to, I keep looking for all, the, if I just get the right job, I keep looking for all the relationships that will make me whole instead of saying God is the only one that can make me whole. And I have messed up my entire kingdom. And I've messed up my life. And I've messed up my kids' lives. And I'm done with it, Solomon says. I'm finished. I'm just done. I'm not chasing the women anymore because that was Solomon's big issue. He was even warned by his mother in Proverbs and wrote it down (laughs) not to be chasing women. And Solomon's like, thanks mom, love you, no. And he says, I only found one true man. Have you found the one true man? Jesus? Only one. You can look for thousands of men. There's only going to be one man that can save you. And that's why Solomon didn't say there's a woman who can save us. Because the the seed of the man was the one that had to come from heaven to bring Mary a child to save us. Solomon is prophesying here. That it's through the wickedness of man and woman that God is going to bring his salvation to the world and I'm looking for that one guy and I've tried all these women and it doesn't work. And all the women were fine to throw themselves at Solomon because he had all they could ever want. And you know what? Living the hard life of Solomon's day as a woman, as a rural woman on a farm, was a lot worse than just being married to Solomon and being one of his 1,000. I'd rather be one of 1,000 than have to live that life. Here's what Solomon says. Only see this. So he just lays all this out. He says, but only see this. I have discovered that God made people upright, but they pursued many schemes. See, he's not a misogynist. He made women and he made men so that they could be upright, so that they could worship him, so they could have a relationship with him, not be scared and coward, but actually be with him. Like, He originally created people to be right with him and to have a relationship. The problem was they all schemed together, and we're still doing it today. There are so many marriages that are nothing more than a scheme, and someone in the marriage just needs to say, you know what, as for me, I'm going to follow Christ, and I'm even going to die for you when I don't feel like it, because that's what Jesus did for me. I can't control what you do. I can't control what you say. I can't control the situation. But I'm willing to lay down my life. And we don't need to be looking at the other person and say, yeah, you better. Because if that's our heart, then we better be pointing a finger back at ourselves because we're now in the you owe me relationship. Where both people should say, I'm giving you 100% even if you give zero because that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus says, I'm giving 100% to my father. I'm giving 100% to save who will be saved whatever it takes. And it's not, I'm going to give you everything you want. That's why most marriages, is like, well, you're not giving me this, this, and this. Well, Jesus took everything away from Job. Everything. And Job said, I'm going to worship you. The only thing Job got to keep was his wife. Have you read the book? Every time I read the book, I'm like, really, God? You could have just taken her and left a kid. Because she told God multiple, told Joe multiple times, I just wish you'd curse God because I know when you do, he'll kill you and then I could be free to marry someone else. That's who he was married to through the whole struggle. Ouch. But if we look at our own hearts, we can be the same way. So discover this. God wants to make you upright again. God wants you to fear him, and God will make you upright. You can't. You've got too big of a debt to pay. You can't do it, Solomon says. Solomon's 60. I can't fix all this, but God, you can. And then just say, God, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to fear you. I'm gonna, and you know what? I'm going to die for the people around me. And you know what? They're probably going to kill me when I do it. And I'm, I'm, I'm probably not going to receive anything. He goes on, last verse. Who is like the wise person and who knows the interpretation of a matter? You think you're wise? You think you know the interpretation? You, know, you think you got it all figured out? You think you know how it should all work? Really? Solomon's like, I'm the wisest man to ever live supernatural. You think you got more wisdom than me? And then he says, a man's wisdom brightens his face and the sternness of his face is changed. If you actually fear God, if you actually fear the Lord, okay, then your face will change. Your sternness will change. You won't be such a stern, angry, I'm entitled person anymore. That, that won't be who you are. You will become someone who is broken, someone who finds joy fearing God and obeying his commands. Do we have stern faces sometimes and there's anger? Yes, but God says, I want to change that. I want to give you a face of joy. But you got to stop listening to the world. You got to stop chasing the things of the world and you got to go hard after me. And you have to do the simple things that I ask you to do. And you have to have people around you that will help you to do it. Because I'm telling you, if you don't, it won't work it won't work. You'll keep chasing. You'll get another church. You'll get another marriage. You'll get another job. You'll get another, 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 another. And at the end of your life, you'll be like, what in the world was I chasing? And you know what? You could come to the end of your life and God will still forgive you. He'll forgive 10,000 years of garbage if you're really broken. But don't play the game that you think I can just live however I want and at the end of my life repent because God may take you before you get the opportunity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love and your mercy, your grace. Lord, I thank you this morning for those that are here, those that are at home sick, joining us online. Lord, those that will hear this message later, who are out of town and visiting family, they're at weddings, they're all over the place. Lord, we know there are a lot of people not here this morning, but Lord, I pray that wherever they are, Lord, that you would help them to see that they just need to fear you and do what you ask them to do in whatever context they find themselves in this morning. Lord, the reality is this isn't just hard, it's impossible without you. And so Lord, this morning, I just pray for those that are here and those that are listening. And Lord, I pray that you would give us hearts of surrender. That we'd stop chasing a name for ourselves, we'd chase your name and that we'd truly fear you and say, God, what do you want? Because you've given me everything. And we'd stop trying to use and manipulate and scheme. And we just ask you, instead of scheming everything for our benefit, we would just say, God, I just wanna be upright with you. I just want to be right with you. And if I do that, everything else, regardless of what happens, what I think should happen, shouldn't happen, the wickedness, the evil, I can go through it because I have you. And so, Lord, if anyone here doesn't know you, I pray today would be the day they bow their head. They bow their heart. They tear their clothes. They shave their heads all metaphorically and just say, I'm done. I'm done. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I surrender. And Lord, what they're surrendering to is what you did, Jesus, that you came and you paid the price. You surrendered your rights to die on a cross and to be resurrected so that we could have hope. And so, Lord, I pray that that they would know that if they pray that and they mean that from their heart, if they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that you are who you say you are, then you say that you will save them and you will patiently work with them. And Lord, for those of us who know you, I pray that you would help us to to change our faces of sternness and bitterness to joy for all you have done. We'd stop looking at what we don't have and the mess around us and all this stuff, and we'd start really looking at who you are and considering who you are and loving you. And Lord, I thank you that this is your will to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in everything, because this is the will of those who believe that our Messiah has come, that he is Yahweh who saves, who is the only God, Yahweh, in the universe. And we thank you, amen.